we started looking we started looking at the question of the this world and the next world and specifically the question of why the Torah does not mention the world to come why the Torah discusses reward in this world but does not mention a reward in the world after this or in fact does not mention the existence of a world that follows this one at all Who, who's not been here for the previous sessions in this series <clears throat> let's just recap very briefly the question and state without going into detail the answers that we've seen so far the question is that um, the question is that if you examine the text of the Torah throughout all of what we in English call scripture all 24 books of the written of the written law you will not find any reference to a world after this even though our oral tradition is full of the idea that this world is only a prelude to a world to come, which in fact is the definitive situation of reward. We tried to explain the Jewish concept of reward being not a thing that is given, but an intrinsic state of being. In other words, our concept of the world to come is that it is a dimension, if you like, in which all that exists there is one's own essential and intrinsic essence. All the raw material is stripped away. All that you're left with there, all that you are there, is the work that you put in. Now, that's the Jewish concept of the world to come. It's not that you're there achieving or experiencing a reward. You simply are there in the deepest sense in contact. Even that would really be inappropriate language. But you are experiencing what it is that you are, and in a deeper sense experiencing reality itself in the most intense possible way. Perhaps a slightly easier way to grasp this is from its negative, is that our tradition teaches us that the opposite existence, that means a person who has worked so negatively to generate such pain or such negative spiritual energy in the world, so the sense of pain that they have there is the sense of non-existence. But of course, it's being there to feel that non-existence. It's not just not being there. That wouldn't be painful at all. It is the sense of the own of your lack of existence where it should have been. Some sources make it sound something like very, very crudely what solitary confinement in a completely deafferented sense might be. In other words, if you're put into a situation of solitary confinement with no possible relationship with anything, right, that means no, nothing to absorb. You know, people put in solitary confinement when they're confined to a cell with no contact with anything. If, a, if an insect appears in the cell, or a rat or a mouse, for example, it's of major significance, and people set up relationships, very, very deep and meaningful relationships that keep them sane with a cockroach or a, or a mouse, because there is nothing else. A tremendous, it's a very distressing and disturbing situation, being, and no matter what your relationship with cockroaches and mice might be under normal circumstances, <laughs> but uh, to be in a situation where there's no relationship at all and nothing intrinsic to feel either would be the pain of, of existing but feeling the lack of one's own intrinsic existence. Our concept of the next world is a concept of experiencing yourself but that component of yourself that you built yourself. Now, again, okay, there's much more to say about it but that's the direction. And of course that's eternal. We're, not, we're talking about something that transcends time. We have only a concept of time in this world. Our concept of time in that world is the root of what is time in this world. The, the Kabbalistic sources say that time in that world is actually transitions of spiritual forces, and it's not the time to go into it. There's certain spiritual transitions that take place, 1,080 of them every hour, whatever that means. And those transitions, those, those new setups of energy, each of them creates a new moment of time in this world. It's the root of time. It's something that transcends time. It's something that... Uh, that we experience here as time, but there is not measurable in terms of time. We say, in, in, in our language, we say eternity, which also needs further qualification. But it's that which transcends this world, and it's a state of being which has been earned in the deepest possible sense. Not something that you've earned, which you have coming to you, but something that you've earned in terms of what and whom you've become. Now that state of existence, which is the ultimate reward, of course it, it, it should be obvious to you, that what we're virtually saying when we phrase it that way is that you experience 
not yourself, but Hashem. You know that, again, this is a very deep subject, almost impossible to put into words, but you know that the, the knowledge of, of Hashem, of God, lives in the same zone of the mind with which you know yourself. You know that if you have any, any of your own inner life to speak of, you will know that there's some things that you grasp and know, not because of any external evidence or proof, but because those are first principles that you know intrinsically. The most classic, the most classic application of that idea is your knowledge of yourself. You do not know that you exist. You do not grasp your own existence because you have proofs of your existence. You don't know that you exist because you can feel yourself or because you have any external evidence. You're in big psychological trouble if you only know that you exist because you have some point of reference that you can keep referring to to remind yourself that you exist. That's not... That you, need, you, need, uh, you need to see me privately if that's your... <laughs> <laughs> that's not how you know you exist. You know you exist because it's a first principle of your knowledge. You know that you exist long before you can refer or relate to anything outside of yourself. Is this clear? That's not provable scientifically. It has no philosophical proof. In the history of philosophy, there's never been a formal proof of, your, of one's own existence. Those that have been formulated, in fact, are saying nothing other than this very idea. <coughs> now is not the time to go into it. We call that das. In the, in the spiritual language, you call it das. We mean inner knowledge. Das is the word that the Torah uses for, for the intimate side of marriage. And that word means wisdom. It means a knowledge that is so intrinsic that the, that the wisdom that you know bonds so in, intimately, so intrinsically with you that it is you. The mystical sources say that if something that you know with your das turns out to be untrue, then you cease to exist. It's not that you now lack some knowledge. It is that you cease to exist because... Can you see that? Doubtful. Well, if you know that you exist, how do you know you exist? Because that's primary knowledge. You know that. If that turned out to be untrue, you'd have real trouble, right? Real serious trouble. If that became questioned, if you could ever get to a situation where that inner intrinsic essential grasp of your own existence that's known in its own terms, if that ever became questioned in your mind, can you see what a central problem that would be? It's going to be a long night. Huh? <laughs> You're supposed to be the black belts on a night like this. No? We, chose, we choose these nights so that the, those who are not serious will involve themselves in the alternative frivolities. <laughs> You can tell them I said so. Um, so, let's extend it further. That needs discussion in its own right, and perhaps sometime we'll have the chance to, to look at that subject. But your knowledge of yourself is the beginning of your knowledge of Hashem. In fact, it's remarkable that one of the names that the Torah gives God, one of the, the, one of the names that the Torah uses to express Hashem is the word Ani. It's incredible. Ani in Hebrew means I. The Gemara says, If I am here, everything is here. Hillel said that. Hillel, who was the humblest of all people, said, If I'm here, everybody's here. The Gemara says, <coughs> It's obvious to anybody who has any spiritual background, when he said, If I am here, everyone's here, he did not mean this I. He meant the expanded I, which is the name of Hashem. In fact, the word Ani, in its grammatical permutation, that means if you, perm- if you per- yeah, the permutations of the word Ani mean past, present, and future in the, most, in the deepest The word Ani in Hebrew means I. You know that if you take those letters, again, Hebrew is a precise and scientific language. The letters of the words always mean intrinsically what they say. Again, we can't emphasize this enough. Unlike other languages which are, which are spin-offs from Hebrew, you know that there are 70 language groupings that all spun off from Hebrew. English is easily traceable to Hebrew. There are sources that have worked out the Sanskrit Derivations of Hebrew, you know, derivations within Hebrew. The science of yoga, for example, is a study of certain forces within the body through the interaction of the breathing. Yes, primarily the breathing. You know that the Hebrew word neshima, which means the breath, and neshama, which means the soul, are the same root exactly. Anyway, that's, a, that's another subject. The point is that... The point is that the... 
The word ani, which means I, that deepest expression of what I am, <coughs> that word, if you, perm- if, you, if you transpose the letters, which are always intrinsic to the word, so you get the word ain, which means is not, and you get the word anna, which means an inexpressible longing for a state of transcendence relative to this situation. In other words, <coughs> that's, that's very hard to find the words for this, but let, let's, let's try. The word ani means I. Incidentally, the word I, ani, is the same Hebrew root as the word oniyah, which means a ship. Derech oniyah belev It says in the Pasuk, the way of a ship across the sea. Now, there, there are four things the Mishnah, the Pasuk says, the four things that cannot be understood, that, that transcend human understanding. One of, the, one of them is the way of a, of a man with a young woman. That's a whole discussion. One of, the, one of them is the way of a serpent upon a rock, which is another whole discussion. And one of them is the way of a ship through the sea. Derech on belev yam. The way a ship is traversing the ocean. Yam in Hebrew is 50. Yud mem. 50 always means the transcendent world. 49, as we've just been through the 49 days from Pesach Shuris, 49 is always the measure of the world. Yud mem in Hebrew is always that which transcends the world. That which is the 50th gate goes beyond all measure. The way a ship traverses that... The word ship in Hebrew, oniyah, is the same word as ani. The Gon says that the, <coughs> that the soul enters the body and traverses the world just like a ship. Yeah, just, again, what does a ship do? It defies the forces of, that would drown you otherwise. You know that the, the, the mystics say that the ocean is the, is the dimension of formlessness. Water is always the primary dimension. The world was formed from water. You remember that before the world was formed, it was only water. And out of the water was carved the shape of the world. By the way, that's the secret of mikveh. This, that's the secret of mikveh. When you go into the mikveh, what you're doing is you, you, you're disintegrating yourself back into primary, into primary material, and as you go under the water, man or woman, of course for women it's essential. Women's essential. Today men do it only as a state that we don't have the privilege of being able to fulfill it in the same way as a woman, but we do it for the purification and the elevation, especially before Shabbos. But going into the water is a dissolution into the medium of the water, which means having no form. Uh, the Shlom and others say that the, the, the intention for purity when you go to the mikveh, women should know this, when you, when you go under the water in terms of that particular purification, so then the concept is that people think that when you go under the water you have the intention for purity, but they say it's not so. It's when you emerge from the water you should have the intention for purity. Going into the water is only going into a state of dissolution. It's not a state of purity, it's a state of non-being. It's when you emerge from the water is when the transition takes place. It's a new formation. It's like the world itself was formed out of the water. That's what it is. Anyway, you've managed to get very sidetracked in this discussion, so let me bring you back to the... <coughs> however, however, the uh, concept of a ship is the concept of that which is preventing that drowning, which is becoming part of the medium, so the ship maintains miraculously, right? Although it's heavier than the ocean, but the laws of physics conspire to enable it to float on top of that medium, which would otherwise drown you and make it part of of it, and you traverse the ocean that way. That is what the concept of Ani is. The Gaon says that the soul comes into the body and is carried miraculously through the world in the same way that a ship carries its contents over the sea. In fact, if you wish to look into this much more deeply, read the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, the Gon says, is nothing other than a description of this process. But he tried to evade his mission and he had to go to sea. And what happened was he was thrown out of the ship. That means he was sent back into this That's a remarkable thing. The Gon explains the whole book of Jonah, Jonah right, as being this concept of the soul traversing the world like a ship going across the sea. And it's not accidental that the word ani meaning I and the word aniya meaning ship are the same have the same root. Anyway, the word ani, <coughs> meaning I, if you rearrange the letters, it spells ein, ayin, right? Ayin in Hebrew, with an aleph, which means is not. We spoke about last week the word ayin with an i, with an ayin, right? But ein with a yud means is not. But in Hebrew, the concept of ein is not always means that which is not, but yet could be. The Hebrew word for something that is not and could never be is ephes. Ayin ve ephes. Ephes in Hebrew means is not and could not be. <coughs> has no possibility of being. <coughs> the word ain means that which is not but could be. <coughs> in Kabbalistic terms, it's that which has not yet been revealed. It is, but it's not yet been revealed. We say that this world is yesh me'ayin, something from nothing. This world is not something from nothing. This world is nothing from something. This world is not, yes, this world is a nothing from a real something. 
This world is just a hidden almost nothingness from a real something. But we express it as a something from a nothing, meaning from nothing that was revealed before the world is revealed. That's a basic idea in any basic text of deeper wisdom will, will express that. Too. And therefore, our concept of Ain is that which, is, which could be, but has not yet been revealed. Right? So it means it's the state before revelation, before formation takes place, that's Ain. Rearrange the letters that spells Ani, that's the present state, the state of who I am. And the third concept, the word Anna in Hebrew, which is the same root, means there is no English translation. In English they translate it as please, meaning a pleading for the next, for what will be given next. But there's no, the word Anna is so, it's such an intense longing for that which will be given or be manifest, there is no English translation for it. Like we say, Anna Hashem or Shiana. In, in pathetically battered English translation, it is please Hashem, yes, asking for salvation. But it's obviously much deeper than that. Anna Hashem is that which is far deeper than any please or pleading could be. Meaning that you have in the same letters, amazing thing to understand Hebrew, in the same word that means I, in one version the word means not yet, has not yet been revealed. In its next sequence it means I, that means the revelation of the, of the essence. And then it means that I am to the next stage, relatively speaking, what the previous one was to this. That means there's a longing for the next stage which will make this process shrink into... Are we together? Let me try and show it you just a bit more. I mean, this is so... If this doesn't move you, there's absolutely no hope for you. There you belong in the other place tonight. Um, <coughs> you know that in Hebrew, when you express... this understand the Torah's grasp of human life, of existence. In Torah, when you say... Again, make an effort for this, it's worth it. In Hebrew, when you say, where do you come from? Where do you come from? From where? In Hebrew, the expression is me'ayin. Nakon? Me'ayin tavo, you say. Me'ayin bata, from where did you come? Where you are now is called ani, that's I. And where you're going in Hebrew, where do you go? To where, in Hebrew, you say la'an. Anna telech, la'an. Right? You understand? So, you have three very simple words. You have me'ayin, means from where. Me'ayin, in modern Hebrew, that's how you speak. It's not only classical Hebrew. You say me'ayin, from where. Where you are now is the expression of myself. And then where you are going to, to where you say anna, or la'an. It's the same, that's the root, right? What's absolutely indescribable in its depth and its potency and its beauty is that when you translate me'ayin tavo and ani and la'an, the conventional translation is from where where I am, and to where. Where do you come from, and where are you going to? But the literal translation, the literal translation, you see, people who speak Hebrew don't grasp this, because they're so familiar with the words. It's the reason that the Jewish people never spoke Hebrew as a spoken language. We always avoided it, so that the words would always have their, their pristine potency. When you speak Hebrew as a spoken language, you say, where do you come from? And la'an, right? Where are you going? What does it mean? Where do you come from? Where are you going? But you know what the words literally mean? Me'ayin in Hebrew means, when you say to somebody, where do you come from? You are literally saying to them, you come from nothingness. And when you say, la'an, where are you going to? You are saying, you are going to a dimension that is so far transcends this, that there's no beginning of a possibility to express how amazing that growth and that transcendence is going to be. Now you have to understand this. That means, the person walked in from the kitchen and they're walking out to the, to the uh, God, right? Nothing more dramatic than that. You're talking about five seconds in the life of a human being. They walked out of one room and they're walking into another room. And you sitting there, you say to them, where do you come from and where are you going? In English, it means, where do you come from and where are you going? In Hebrew, you're saying to them, you come from nothingness and you are going to a dimension of... You know why? Do you know why? Because Hebrew, in its spiritual depth, grasps every moment of human existence as a transition from a nothingness relative to what you are now. You just appeared. You just manifested from nothing. That means who you are now, this moment of your life, is a reformed existence. It's a new creation, a new existence that makes the previous five seconds of your life literally a nothingness. And that's nothing compared to what you'll be five seconds from now that will dwarf that transition. If you're living correctly, if you're growing correctly. And it's all in the simple words, where did you come from and where are you going to? There's no way you can begin to express that in any other language without making a lengthy speech and the person won't understand what you mean anyway. <laughs> Incidentally, I'm sure, again, your minds are racing ahead of me. Where does this come from? Who is the first person in the world who began this pathway? Avram Abinu, right? Abraham. Abraham Abinu. How did he start it? 
How did he start this process of what it means to be a Jew? How did he grasp himself? He said to Hashem, Anoichi afar va'efer. When he expressed, he, he expressed the nature of his own grasp, of his own existence to Hashem, he said, Anoichi afar va'efer. I am dust and ashes. I am dust and ashes. Afar va'efer, right? Amazing with the Aleph and the Ayin again, you think into what we said last week. What does it mean to be dust and ashes? You see, the English ear, which is so used to rhetorical emptiness, hears, you know, he was a poet. He was a poet. He was a poet. Hashem said, you know, who am I? I'm dust and ashes. Sounds good on the stage. Torah doesn't work that way. Do you know what it means to be dust and ashes? Afar in Hebrew always means the rich earth from which new growth springs. Afar in Hebrew is, the, is earth, right? The dirt earth that, from which growth takes place. Afar means ashes. Do you know what he was saying? You know what ashes are? Ashes are the result of complete elemental breakdown. When you take something, you ash it. Not just burn it, but you ash it. You know that in medicine, in biology, if you wish to understand the chemical elements of a thing, like an organ, for example, or biological material, you ash it at extremely high temperature instantaneously. What you're left with is a pile of bare elements. Not left with nothing. You're left with a pure elemental material, which means no connection. Only the, only the disconnected elements. <coughs> That's what, that's, what, that's what ashes are. So Anuchi Afa Afa means like this. Do you know what he was saying? Hashem, in every moment of my life, the process of my existence is, I take the previous moment of my life and I ash it. All that's left of all my previous development that brought me to this moment is a total, is ash. That means, that means all I am now is the bare elements that remain from the process that I've done before. And then I take that ash and I turn it into the rich earth from which the next moment of my life will be born. That means there's nothing left of me in this moment that's the result of the previous moment because then you would be living only as a continuation of what you did before. That's called dying. That's called dying. If you're living today because you're rolling on from where you were yesterday, that's called dying. Living means you're here today because you got born today, because you're new today, because you recreated yourself, because the bare elements were reconstructed today. All you remain of from yesterday is the bare elements of what you constructed yesterday. The total pinnacle of what you reached yesterday becomes nothing other than raw elements. Complete, there's no connection between them at all. There's no, there's no dullness or continuity or habit or nothing like that at all. He grasped every moment of his existence that way. Everything that I've been until now becomes ash. And instantaneously that ash becomes the rich earth of a new growth. And as soon as that happens, it becomes ashed again. That's how he saw himself every moment. And it's inherent in the words, May ayin, I come from nothingness. Ani, who I am. And anatelech, that's where I'm going. You don't have to grasp yourself every moment that way. But at least daily, once a week maybe, every Shabbos and the sun goes down. You should at least once a year maybe. Sometime. <laughs> if you're a Jew, a descendant of that cosmically great human being who began this process here. You have to do that sometime. Sincere people try once a day at least. Sit on your bed at night. Before you go to sleep, there should be an ruthlessly honest assessment of where you are different this night than you were this time last night. If you can't identify where, you've, where you're different now and where you can take those elements and go to sleep with the knowledge that those will be the rich earth of a new growth tomorrow, you're not living, you're dying. You're rolling on. That's not called being alive. That's not how a Jew lives. Yeah, anyway. That is the that inner essence that we're talking about is what remains in the next world. That's all that it is. That's all that it is. And of course there it's an infinitely it's a nuclear reaction of this process of of course from one perspective you're static in that world because you have no more free free will in order to build. But the momentum that's been built up itself is a nuclear reactor that that fuels further growth. That's why it says that from one perspective, people in the next, next world cannot move at all. But from another perspective, it's a continuing acceleration right, closer to the source of existence. Both are true. Now, having said all that, why does the Torah not say any of this? Why doesn't the Torah refer to this? If this is the essence of who you are and what you will be forever, then why doesn't the Torah mention it? And furthermore, to compound the problem, as we, as we mentioned before, the Torah does talk about reward. Except when it begins to talk about reward, it talks only about reward in this world. And we read out the verses before. I'm not going to go into it again. The Torah says that if you observe the mitzvahs and you live the way you should as a Jewish people, then you will have rain in its season and crops will be, you know, with plenty of material well-being. And it goes on and on with the description of all the material wealth that you will enjoy, the peace, in the, in the peace of your existence, etc. An absolutely idyllic 
description of what will happen, which sounds much like the messianic ideal. However, that's got nothing to do with the next world. The messianic phase, as we've explained carefully here before, is only that transitional phase that leads to the thousand years of completely transcendent type of Shabbos existence, and then there are many sequences of thousand-year cycles that take place after that, eventually spiraling back to the source, which is what we ultimately mean when we talk about the next world. And therefore the problem becomes, A, why does the Torah not mention the next world? And B, when it does mention reward, it talks only about reward in this world, which seems to be an, a, an open admission that there is no reward, there is no reward in another world, since you're talking about salary, talking about reward, and you, and you only talk about... Okay, are we clear? Are we, did we recap adequately? Dazed. Are we together? Now, in answer to this question, right, we've been discussing a few answers. I'm not going to go into them again. We are looking at the Kliyaka. The Kliyaka is a classic source here who summarizes seven formal answers. There are many answers beyond these, and some of them much, much deeper than the ones that are brought here. But there are seven classic answers to this question, which he has uh, collected from the Babanel, who went into them in detail and summarized them in a classic work of um, summarizing which you can look up yourself in the Kliyaka and Now, the answers, that, the answers that we looked at before, without going into detail, are just to remind you the first one, the first answer here that he brings, I'm not again, again going to the sources, is that the Torah here, you remember? I'm, I hope you, someone remembers. Well, I'm not going to have you destroy my week, but show me that you don't remember. But the first answer here was that uh, the Torah is not talking about reward at all. It is only talking about expenses. Remember? Somebody? The Torah here is only talking about expenses. If you live correctly, you will be given what you need to keep living correctly. It's got nothing to do with reward at all, and that's why it talks about physical existence. Second question then would be, so why doesn't it mention the next world someplace else? And we answered, you remember? The Rambam says clearly, because then you would be tempted to serve for the reward. And in fact, the correct way of living and serving is not for the reward, but simply because it's right. And therefore... We have an oral tradition that tells us about the world to come. Hashem wants us to know about it, but He doesn't write it in the contract because He shouldn't be operating that way. An analogous to a marriage relationship in which you are doing what you're doing for one's partner in marriage because it's right and because of the love involved in the relationship, not because it will be sweet and pleasant for you. It will be sweet and pleasant for you, and once your spouse does not mind that you know that, and of course it's reciprocal, there's no problem. But to make a mercenary arrangement that we deal with each other correctly only so that it benefits me would be reducing love to a commercial relationship. And that's why, since the Torah is supposed to be love and not a commercial deal, it's not mentioned in the contract. Clear? Okay. Now, revision helps, doesn't it? I hope. Yes? Does it? Comes clearer each time? Okay, second, that was the first of the answers. The second answer that he brings is, and without going into detail again, is that the Torah is given to all, and this is an extremely esoteric area. The knowledge of the next world is extremely esoteric. Only one in a thousand could begin to relate to it correctly, and the Torah is written in such a way that everybody can relate to it, at least at its simplest level. This is not like that, and therefore it's not mentioned explicitly. It's mentioned in the deeper references, which those people who can relate to it will find adequate anyway. Thirdly, and we went into detail, the third opinion, which is, uh, again, amazing. We didn't explain in detail, but just to mention it, is that the, again, incredible idea, uniquely Jewish idea. The Torah is talking only about supernatural things, right? Amazing idea. The Torah talks only about supernatural things. Just, just listen to the uniqueness and the, the inexpressible beauty of this. The Torah speaks only about supernatural things. The fact that you do mitzvahs and the rain falls as a consequence is supernatural. That is totally supernatural. That is miraculous and supernatural. You perform mitzvahs in the land of Israel in the physical world, you treat each other correctly as human beings, you take a lulav and you shake it, you eat matzah and pesach, and the rain falls in its season as a result, that is totally miraculous, the Torah speaks about it. But the fact that the soul should go back to the place it came from is completely natural, there's nothing surprising about that. The fact that the human soul comes from a place, right, which is the ultimate supernal source of oneness, and therefore will go back there is completely natural, absolutely natural, no need to say it. The Torah only says the things that you wouldn't figure out, 
The fact that the soul was quarried out of a quarry that is oneness with Hashem and therefore obviously will go back there. Who needs to say that? But the fact that you do mitzvahs in the physical world like eat matzah and the rain falls, that is wild. That is, that is totally miraculous and supernatural. The Torah tells you that. Now you may well ask, so if that's true, why could it not also talk about the next world in addition to this? So he says that this very source in the Torah that we've been studying goes on to say, no, excuse me, the Torah itself says that the people who do not live correctly will be cut off from their source. That it certainly says, and he brings verses, the Torah says that those who live in an evil fashion will be disconnected from their spiritual source. Now what could be clearer? What could be a clearer explicit statement that there is a spiritual source that those who do not live negatively will go back to? You have to go and say it as well? Are you with me? And therefore, what do you mean the Torah doesn't talk about the world to come? Of course it does. It says, if you don't do what you should, you'll be cut off from the world to come. From the oneness with Hashem, etc. You'll be cut off. The word chorus means excision and disconnection and excommunication in the English jargon. And therefore, the Torah says that. So it doesn't have to then say the obverse, which is that if you live correctly, you'll be connected. Yes? All it chooses to say in the converse is that if you live correctly, yes... If you live wrongly, you'll be disconnected from that source. There, we said it. If you live correctly, then the miracle of the rain falling in its season, etc., which is totally unpredictable and unheard of, that will, that will happen. That's the summary of that answer. So far, so good? Yeah, I'm not going to go into that now, if you don't mind. The difference between Ani and Anoichi, especially since Wednesday night is not question night. Wednesday night is total solo night. <laughs> and you see how sidetracked we get even then, right? Is, uh, but uh, the, your question, the answer to your question is this. The difference between Ani and Anoichi in Hebrew, in classical Hebrew, the difference is Anoichi, Anoichi in Hebrew means I in my intrinsic essence and existence, and Ani means I in terms of the possibility of relationship to that which is beyond me. Yes? Are you with me? There's no accident. There are synonyms in Hebrew. There are no synonyms. Every nuance in Hebrew has a unique and a unique and absolute meaning. The, t- the Ten Commandments begin with Anoichi Hashem Elokecha. I am Hashem. Yeah, are you with me? Yes? I am Hashem, which is the first of the Ten Commandments. The mystical sources say that the first of the Ten begins before there is any relationship or any possibility of relationship. When you begin a process, again, if I, in the moment of beginning, there is no relationship which that, with that which will come in the second moment because you haven't gotten there yet. The, for example, when the Torah talks about the first day of creation, it does not call it the first day. It calls the second day the second day, and it calls the third day the third day. But the first day it does not call the first day. The first day it calls day one. Yes, Yom Echad. It does not say Yom Rishon. The second day it does not say, it says Yom Shani, which means second. Second implies relationship to first and third. But the first, if you said first, you would already be implying a relationship to second. How can you do that when all you have is one? Point taken. Point taken. And therefore, the Ten Commandments begin with Anoichi, which means I in my essence before there is even whom to command. But that's why, by the way, there's a debate in the Rishonim about whether the first of the Ten Commandments is a commandment or not. That means the mitzvah of emunah, of belief in Hashem, is it a preamble to the commandments? Those who say it is say you can't have a commandment because commandment means speaking to a second party while you're talking about the moment of creation and firstness. And therefore the, mitzvah, therefore the statement of Hashem's existence is not a commandment, it's just a state of being that enables commandments to be given. And others say it is the first of the commandments. There's a subtle debate there. But. So in summary, the answer to your question is, Ani means I in possibility of relationship with you, and Anochi means I in myself. There's a much more fascinating layer to this question if you think about it. And that is just briefly. You notice there are times when the Torah talks about Anoichi, which means I in my essence, and then talks about relationship. What that means is that when I relate to you, Hashem says, I give you me, myself, not something that relates to you. If the word Ani means I in terms of relationship, then surely whenever I relate, I should say Ani. The Torah doesn't do that. When Hashem says He's going to relate to you, He uses the word Anoichi, which means I in myself, and that shall relate to you. And just just to drive it home, the Talmud says that the word Anochi in Hebrew is an acronym, amazing idea, is an acronym for the, word, for the concept 
Ana nafshik sivas yahivas, which means I myself have written down and given to you. The Torah says that the word anochi, which means I in my intrinsic essence, not in my ability to relate, but I as I am, that word stands in Hebrew for the sentence ana nafshi, I my soul, myself, my inner being, ksivas have written, vayivas and given. That means the Torah is nothing other than Hashem's essence written down and presented. Yes, yahivas. Yahav means to give in Aramaic. Yes, based on the Hebrew root hav, to give. Anyway, that's, uh, yeah. Sunday morning, you're welcome to come and we have uh, here a dialogue. On, you, I, I have no problem with, with questions, just that we tend not to be able to cover a subject, if you don't mind. It, it, it meaning you said, all right so far. I thought that wasn't rhetorical. <laughs> I just want to nod, that's all. Just a yep, yeah. and we'll continue. <laughs> okay, you'll forgive me. You will forgive me, right? <laughs> Good. Okay. So the next—that's the next—that's um, the next answer. The fourth one. Where did we get to last time? Yeah, we got this far. Just hold it one second. The fourth answer says is like this. I don't think we studied this, did we? Yes. So then, let's just mention it briefly. Is that in those days? This is what he says. The Kliyakar. In those days, meaning when the Torah was given, the whole world denied Hashgacha. The whole world denied Hashgacha means basically Hashem's direct interaction with human affairs. The world said they were prepared to accept that the world had a divine origin, but there was an ongoing interaction with the world, right? You know, this is formulated or formalized in philosophical, in, in theory, as the watchmaker or clockmaker theory. He created the world like a clock, like a watchmaker created a watch, wound it up and left it to run and disappeared to do other things while the thing runs on by itself. And Judaism explicitly teaches that he maintains an ongoing conscious interaction with the world to the, on the finest level of detail, not just that he lets the thing run by itself. Okay? That is our belief. Nevesh Chaim says it goes much further, actually, which is not just that Hashem interacts with the world, but he maintains its essential creation every moment. In fact, he goes so far as to say that, um, that unlike human creation, when you create something, if you walk away from it, the thing remains. Hashem's crea creation is such that it's an emanation or manifestation of Himself. If He could walk away from it, if He would walk away from it, it would instantaneously cease to be. It wouldn't have an existence outside of Him. Nothing can tick on its own outside of Him since He is all of existence. And therefore Judaism requires absolutely a, a concept of all of existence being nothing other than supported by his existence. In fact, the deep expression of this in Judaism is the fact that one of Hashem's name is the word makom, which means the place. The word makom in Hebrew, right? The word makom, which means a place, is one of the divine names. Baruch ha-makom, blessed is the place of the world. That's because, the, that's because the, the concept is that he is the place of the world, not that the world is his place. He is the place of the world. The world takes place as it were. We're not talking about physical space. We're talking about possibility of existence. But in metaphor we say that he is the place of the world. The world exists, yes, space and of course beyond space, space and time. And all of its existence exists within him. As if he, so to speak, is the place of the world. Are we together? The word makom, incidentally, is one of those remarkable Hebrew words that begins and ends with the same letter. And we discussed those, those words before. They've got unique meaning. The Medaktikim said that the word makom, it's amazing. Again, how can you avoid talking about these things? The, the, word, the word makom in Hebrew, just to, just to share a little a moment here. The word makom in Hebrew actually is nothing other than an essential expression of the word mekayem, which means gives existence. Again, the word makom in Hebrew is mekayem. It means it establishes and gives existence. Why? Because no, nothing can exist in space unless it first has a place in which to exist. You cannot, by definition, have an object unless it has a place to be. Otherwise, it could not exist. You cannot have existence of a world unless you first have its possibility of existence, which is what Hashem is. In fact, the amazing thing, some of the you know, sources that say that the word makom in Hebrew, <coughs> the word makom in Hebrew is a very interesting numerical derivation. You know the gematria, as we've discussed, the numerical, yes, numerological, numerical equivalence of words in Hebrew... Makom is, is very interesting. The word makom adds up to the same number as Hashem's name, the four-letter name, the four-letter name, Yudke Vavke, that letter, that name. When you take that name and you multiply each letter by itself, yes, the first letter is a Yud. Yud times Yud is 100. Hey times Hey, 25, etc. When you add up that, <coughs> when you add that up, right, 
Yud times Yud is 100. Hey times Hey is 25. You have two of those. That's 50. Vav times Vav is 36, 186. That is the equivalent of the word Makom. What is the meaning? What is the, again, this is not playing games with numbers. In, in Hebrew, the gematria has a specific meaning. You can't just figure out some mathematical equivalence and then make up a meaning. We're not talking about that. Chas Vashon. Torah is not playing... Yet, on the contrary, the numbers in Hebrew, the numerological equivalents of words in Hebrew, are the scientific notation of what those things are. Just like in English, you can talk about a chemical reaction in words, or you can give the scientific notation that much more accurately evinces what's going on. Similarly, in Hebrew, you can read the words in their verbal sense and know what's happening, or you can transpose them into their numerological equivalents and get the scientific or physics or chemistry representation of what's happening. The word <coughs> Yudke Vavke, that name which means Hashem's existence, <coughs> which means was, is, and shall be, the deepest name we have of His existence, when you multiply each letter by itself, you get the word Makom. Why? The... That's true. That's true. And that's why it's a four-letter word. Amazing thing. The Mem, again, you don't, I don't know what you've said. The word Mem in Hebrew means 40. It begins and ends with 40. 40, the mystics say, is always 4 raised to its highest manifestation. 4 is always the dimensions of the world. There are 4 corners to the earth. The, the, the early thinkers did not think that the world was square. They knew it was a ball. The Torah says so, obviously. But, but, the, but the physical, the land is always considered to be 4 sided. We have north, south, east and west. Why that is another discussion, before we get sidetracked into that. Let's just, just keep going on this track for a moment. But it's deeply, deeply connected to that. However... <coughs> However, when you take a word in Hebrew and multiply each letter by itself, you're doing a specific process. What you're doing is this. A thing multiplied by itself in the Kabbalistic system always means full expression from the root. The thing itself is the root. Multiplied by itself means giving rise to all its possibilities. Where have we, where have we seen an example that we've shared together? Please don't disappoint me. What you're about to say, obviously, you're just a little shy, is the seven weeks that have seven days each, so we have 49 days. Why are there 49 days to the Omer? Because each of the seven, again, is this right? Why are there seven times seven elements that make the world? Because if the definition of any existence in the world is that it has seven components, obviously it follows that each of those components must have seven. If you said that the world is made out of elements that have seven elements or seven levels, then obviously each of those must have seven. So you must have 49. Of course, you must have 49 times seven as well. But you've said the basic idea when you've expressed this concept. Are we together? The basic level of understanding is that whenever you have components that make a thing, if they make one thing, then each of them must have that part of it which relates to all the other parts. So that each, each part of seven must have six others and its own relationship with itself. It, is this clear? And therefore, they're always, always, anything that exists in depth in Hebrew, in Torah always is the thing multiplied by itself. The thing itself is the nucleus of the idea. But when you multiply it by itself, you've shown all its possibilities. You've brought it to expression in the world as opposed to the nucleus of the thing. Therefore, when you take a word and multiply it, each letter, each element of it by itself, you're now not going to look at the, at the concept anymore. You're going to look at what happens when it runs, when the program runs. When you look at the word in its own right, then you're looking at the nucleus of the idea. When you multiply each letter by itself, you're looking at what that thing does when you allow it to run and express itself fully. Is this clear? Yudke Vavka is the name of Hashem, which is the essence of, 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 of what He is. But when you multiply each letter by itself, then you get what happens when that name, Kivyochel, expresses itself, and that word is Mokom, the place of the world. Amazing, amazing. Anyway, the interaction with the world is called Ashkocha, that He interacts actively right with what, with what He's doing here. Now, the generation that received, in the generation that received the Torah, there was a widespread denial of his interaction with the world. Even those who accepted his primal uh, creative in, uh, involvement, but his ongoing interaction with the world was denied. And therefore, the Torah states here that if you live correctly, he will interact with you right here and now. If you live correctly, the rain will fall. Do what you have to do. You'll see his involvement with the world here and now. Right? If, you, if, if the Torah would say, well, if you live correctly, you'll have a reward in the next world, how could you ever have an evidence? In other words, the Torah exposes itself to an immediate here and now test of his interaction with us. As opposed to saying, well, in another world, there'll be a reward, a consequence, but you'll never get to see it here. As long as you're alive, the Torah says, forget about that. Live correctly here and I'll show you directly my involvement with you. 
By the way, there are other places where we see this. I don't know if you're aware of this. Stocker, for example. Stocker, giving charity. The Torah clearly writes, the Gemara writes, that giving charity is the one area where you may directly test Hashem. It's ultimately and utterly forbidden in all other areas. Hashem, I'm doing this mitzvah, I want to see the result. I'm doing a mitzvah for you, I want, you, I want to see the reward or the result immediately. Forbidden and a chutzpah to do. But in the mitzvah of Stocker, I'm giving charity, I'm giving money to, in the right sense and in the right, to, to right recipient, the right cause. I would demand from you, Hashem, to see the result immediately. I want to see it come back to me and come back to me manifold. And you can set up rules and you're allowed to do it. And in fact, the sources say it's a mitzvah, not only a permission. It's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to test him in the area of stalker. You're not allowed to do it elsewhere. You give money and you say, I want to see the consequences. And you set it up and you will be directly shown. Hashem exposes himself to being tested in that fashion. And anybody who's ever tried it, of course, knows how it works. And he brings the Kuzari famous source where the king of the... You're aware of the Kuzari and, and what it is. Everybody should obviously have... I presume that you come to these classes having studied the Kuzari in detail. The Kuzari said to the Talmud Chacham in his dis- debate with him, he said to him, I see that other religions promise a richer and fatter reward than you. You Jews, yes, other religions pre- pre- um, promise, referring to particular other religions, they promise a reward that is fatter. The, the words are... Shmeinim v'dashenim. It means fatter and dashen means dripping with, you know, pleasure. And um, they offer more than you do. <clears throat> so the, the, the Jewish sage answered him, yes, but those religions offer their fat and rich reward in, in another dimension, not in this world. The Torah comes along and despite that, he, he says to him, those, those, those nations that say that if you live according to their system and, 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 and obligations or their... Uh, their system, you will have such a rich reward in the next world, despite that none of them are rushing to get there. Despite that if you offered them a thousand years of life in this world they would take that, thank you very much. We mentioned the suicidal nature of the certain Arab anti-Jewish attacks and that's we have to discuss separately. However, that's it, that is what it is. The Torah doesn't do that. The Torah says, forget about the next world. Live correctly and you'll feel it here and now and that is specifically what the Torah is doing. Okay, can we move on? Before we move on, just to understand a bit more deeply, Hashgacha means, what, what does it mean? Let's try and, what, is, what does it mean, Hashem's interaction with your life? How, how, how do you feel that? Uh, very often, we live in a generation of such doubt and such darkness. Many people have, the, as their primary problem, the problem of not being able to feel or see or experience that interaction directly. Also, there are certain halachic requirements where you may... What sort of things, what sorts of things happen that you can read as a sign of, of direct communication? What may you not read as a sign? What may you set up? Are you allowed to make a test for yourself and say, if this happens, it means this or it means that? In fact, that's called nichos. You may not do that. You may not say, well, if a leaf falls off that tree in the next 30 seconds, it means I'm meant to do this or do that. That's called nichos. You're setting up a test and asking him to dance to your tune? That's completely forbidden. In fact, the big debate about this is in the original sources, when Eliezer went to marry find a wife for Yitzchak. So he said, if a girl comes out and she pours water and she does this and she does that, then I'll know that she's the one that's destined for him. Some of the commentaries say, how is he allowed to do that? How is he allowed to do that? That means you're making, you, you, you're defining the test. You want him to operate according to your test. You stand there and say, right, Hashem, I want a girl to arrive. She must do this and this and this and pour water for me and my camels a whole, and then I'll know she's the one. you telling him how to... And the, most of them answer that the reason he was allowed to do that was because he was not setting up a divine test. He was simply setting up a logical test of the girl's greatness and kindness. That's all. If a young girl comes out and she sees that we're thirsty, we need to be, etc., then she's manifesting the kind of chesed that, um, that Avram's family needs. And therefore, it's a logical, it's different, it's a logical test. But if you say, if a leaf falls or if this happens or that happens, you're not allowed to do that, right? That's called nichos. You, you may not do that. However, if things happen, can you read them as signs? If things happen in your life and it looks very, very suspiciously like that's a message for you, are you allowed to take it as a message? Is it a chutzpah to think that you're on a level where he speaks directly to you? Usually it is. Usually it is. However, there's some exceptions. What is the general principle here? There's a very important subject to understand. We don't have prophecy anymore, but we do have what's called a bus call. Bus call means a voice that comes out that can manifest through certain secondary sounds that you hear in the world that are in fact intended to be read. The big problem, of course, here in this generation, there are two problems. One is understanding it correctly, halakhically, which is a whole source that we need to 
a sugya, an, an area we need to go into thoroughly. Perhaps we'll get the time to do that. But the second problem, of course, is our generation is absolutely saturated with ridiculous superstitious nonsense. And therefore they tend to see everything as some or other sign and usually as a quick fix that can help avoid my having to do any work here. Simply go along and get a direct answer that short circuits all the self-development and work that I have to do and therefore solve all my problems extraneously. Instead of doing work on myself and taking on my obligations and doing them properly and living up to my Torah obligations, I'll go to somebody who can read my palm or my tea leaves or my mazuzas or tefillin or who knows what it is, my forehead or my ears, and uh, tell me what's going to be. Right? And we discussed this, if you remember, when we discussed astrology. The sources say that it's absolutely forbidden for a Jew to go to any astrological, seek any astrological advice. It does not mean that astrology is not a valid tool. On the contrary, it's written in the Lachic sources that if an accredited astrological source will tell you what's going to be, you may accept it as true. We're talking about accredited. We're not talking about the back page of the Sunday newspapers. We're talking about somebody who knows who's been proved to be correct. But it stands these things. If it will tell you that there are certain energies and certain forces, a credited, knowledgeable person, you're allowed to accept it as true. You may not accept that it's inevitable because that's not what a Jew is. We are above the source of those things. We're not subject to them. Do you know what the Yerushalmi says? The Talmud Yerushalmi says that if you seek astrological prediction, if it's given to you without seeking it, then you may believe that it's significant and take action to avert whatever it is and the specific action you should take. And that's a whole debate in its own right. But if you seek astrological prediction, it means that you are giving credence to that. And Yerushalmi says if you go to seek astrological or other forms of divination type prediction, the result will be that you'll be given the information and then you won't be able to escape. This is what you want, then this is what you shall have. You believe that you're part of the system. I see some significant glances here in the room. Anyway, the point is that you are, if you are seeking astrological advice, it means you believe that you're part of the system, you're part of the mechanics of the system, then in fact, if you put yourself into it, then you're part of the system. A Jew is required to believe that the system's part of you. You transcend the source. You're not... Resol- you're not- then Yushalmi learns it in a very beautiful way. When it talks about Bilam cursing the Jewish people, he looked at this incredible people who are supernatural people, and he said, Ki lo nachash b'yakov. Lo nachash b'yakov means there is no nichush. Nichush means divination. Not these <coughs> methods of, of soothsaying and divination. Ki lo nachash b'yakov. There is no divin... By the way, the word serpent, meaning the original serpent is the same root as nacha. Amazing thing. Which you can figure out for homework. But uh, for now, the, the word nichush means there is no nichush in, in Yaakov. Ki lo nachash b'yakov. There is no nichush. Says the Yerushalmi, that verse can be read two ways. Ki lo nachash means there is no divination among the Jewish people. But for those who, in, in the Jewish people who do go for it, lo nachash, to him it shall be this force. You can read it both ways. The word lo in Hebrew can mean there is not, or it can mean to you there is. To him there is. And that's the drosha that the Yerushalmi makes on that verse. Therefore, if you put yourself into the system, Avram Avinu was given astrological predictions, and he thought he was subject to it. You remember what happened? Hashem said to him, you shall have a son. So he turned to Hashem and he said, but it says otherwise in the stars. Who, who was he arguing with? You understand this argument? Hashem appeared to him in person, right? The ultimate prophetic revelation and said, you will have a son. He was infertile, he was too old, his wife was too old, etc. It was impossible, physically impossible. Hashem said, you shall have a child. So he said, but Hashem, it's impossible because the stars say otherwise. What kind of argument is that? God himself arrives and says, you'll have a child. And he tells him that the stars say otherwise. What's going on? But it's not hard to understand. What was going on was like, was this. The stars, as we explained on that occasion, are nothing other than interface between the higher world, Hashem's Hashgacha and us. They're what we call the stars. We're not talking about the physical stars yet. But it's the world of the mazalot, what we call the zodiac, right? Mazal. Mazal in Hebrew means to flow down. You know that? It's pathetically translated in English as luck. Luck means something that has no higher connection. It's not what it means. Mazal in Hebrew, nozel, means a liquid. It means that which flows down directly from a higher place. Only you can't see the source. But we explained it in much more detail last time we went into it. However, however, that astrological world is nothing other than Hashem's bringing down his energy to this world. So when, when Hashem said to him, you'd have a son, he said to him, but Hashem, you said in your stars otherwise. You're telling me a contradiction. you personally telling me I'll have a child. But in your stars, which you wrote, which is nothing other than your speaking, it says otherwise. That was the contradiction. And Hashem answered him. He could not possibly understand that as a human being. Hashem said, you think you're subject to the stars. You're making a big mistake. You stand beyond the stars. They're subject to you. You're not, that's why we say, Ein mazal Yisrael. The Jewish people have no mazal. We're not subject to the astrological influences. We transcend them. But there's a precondition. The condition is you have to put yourself beyond them. 
If you put yourself subservient to them, then they very much have an effect on you. But if you live transcending them, then they have no effect on you. When you live in the physical world and transcend it, which is what he did, he lived through ten ordeals, each of them higher than the one before, until he was able to give up that which was deepest and most precious, even that son that had been given to him. Hashem said, you live that way, you go against your nature, you transcend the physical laws and the laws of the physical world, you transcend that, then you're not subject to those forces, they're subject to you. But you have to put yourself outside it. You have to live in a supernatural fashion. Then you get dealt with in a supernatural way. The Gemara there's the Yushalmi has wonderful examples. The Babli has, I mean, Rabbi Akiva, again, without going too much deep, the Gemara says that Rabbi Akiva was told by an astrologer that his daughter would die on the day of her wedding. We're not talking about, we're talking about real astrologers, people who really understood and really knew in those days. And Rabbi Akiva was extremely concerned. He had from an authoritative source that she would die on the day of her wedding. What happened was during, and she got married, and during the wedding meal, she took a hairpin out of her hair and she placed it in the wall behind her. And at the moment that she placed it in the wall, it transfixed a cobra that was about to strike and saved her life. So the sages gathered round and they tried to work out what had happened. Why was she saved in that miraculous fashion? And after a lot of investigation, what turned out was that just before that, what had happened was she was sitting at her wedding feast the happiest moment of her life. I mean, tremendous. If there's one moment in your life we're justified thinking a little bit about your own, about yourself, a poor person had come into the hall without a meal. And in the excitement and the, and the, and the greatness of the, the wedding of Rebbe Kiva's daughter, nobody had taken notice and giving, but she had. She had. And she gave him her meal and saved her life. Why? Because when a Jew lives in a fashion that's supernatural, when you do that, which no animal would do, Yes, when you transcend the natural energies and the earthy and sensual and physical forces, when you transcend that, then you live on a plane that's higher than that. Then, you, then you're not subject to the rules anymore. And there you show me as a whole list of examples of people who lived on that, on that plane. A simple mitzvah. Jude does a simple mitzvah. A simple mitzvah is an action in the physical, but that raises you above the physical. What happens then is your destiny, so-called destiny, is changed entirely because if you put yourself beyond the mechanics, then you are beyond the mechanics. But you have to live that way. You have to live that way. If you put yourself into the mechanics, if you go for all this uh, predictions and uh, superstitious nonsense, and you change Torah into a superstitious, ridiculous If you change it into that, then don't expect any, any spiritual greatness. And Torah is, is, is a deep understanding of living in the, in the root of creation. It's not transforming the deepest and, and, and most holy and, and most ta- that which takes the deepest work on oneself, translating that into a quick fix where you can carry on living just exactly the, the way you want, doing what you want, eating what you want, doing to Shabbos whatever you want, living relationships the way you want, and then you go and do some quick superstitious nonsense and you think that's such an insult to Torah that you deserve to be given exactly the opposite. Anyway, the point is that Ashgacha uh, means that direct interaction. Where can you read the signs? So unfortunately, we live in a, in a generation where we have very little direct signs. The axiom in our generation is whatever you see is not a direct sign. And the reason is because you don't deserve it. You don't live on that level. We don't live on that level. Of course, you realize this is our safety valve. If you lived on that level, then you'd have to perform at that level. If you want signs that are generated by a high voltage, then you have to be ready to handle the voltage. Yes, if you touch voltage that's high, you get fried. Our protection is that we live on such a low level, that we can do very little with the energies that we have, but we are safe because they are so weak. It always works that way in Jewish history. But that's our status. And therefore, when things happen today, we cannot unfortunately read the signs. We have general measures that we can take, but we're forbidden to look with some exceptions which I'll try to mention, we're forbidden to look. When things happen in your life, in other words, that you know are significant, but you cannot see why, what does this exactly mean to me? You may not stay, start saying, well, you know, I've got a pain in my tongue. It means that I said something wrong. You can't do that. You, you, you're assuming that you're on a level where you get spoken to directly. You have to be virtually on a prophetic level for that. It's a very, very unusual thing. I once lived in a place. I'll tell you an example. I was once living in a community. It happened to be in Israel small community, <coughs> where a series of events took place in that community that were bizarre. Bizarre events, always in exactly the same fashion. Bizarre events, completely abnormal, so narrowly defined that there was no question there was a... It was always pregnant women. It was disasters that happened to pregnant women in the community and completely unnatural. One woman was shot in the abdomen when she was pregnant by an Arab on a bus. That was one incident. A, a series of events like that, always involving a woman and a pregnancy, 
in bizarre disconnected fashions and it went on and on. Now that doesn't mean something if you're a person who lives in a spiritual consciousness and things like that happen always in one community, narrowly defined, the same type of thing, one after another, surely that has to mean something. So we went to ask the stipler, the great tzaddik who was alive at the time. In fact, we asked another sage as well. The two doctors in the community and the rabbi of the community, and I was, I was one of them and I was present, we went to ask the stipler. As we began our description of what was happening, as we began our description, as soon as it became apparent what it was we were describing, he said to us, they both said exactly the same words, don't even try to read what it means. Don't even try, we're not on the level where we can read it. We know what to do, we know what to do about it, that's a different story. But you try to read into it some particular weakness in your community that's directly connected to that, that's out the question. We don't live on that level anymore. The Gemara says that King Chizke hid the book of, of, of healing. There was a book of healing. It was called Sefer al In that book was written the specific spiritual cause of every physical problem. And all you had to do was go back to that spiritual cause and you could heal the problem. He hid it because it was dangerous for people to have. It was dangerous for people to have. They didn't feel vulnerable enough. And he hid that book. And since he hid it, today we cannot make the links. What to do in general was not a problem. They both said exactly the same thing. They said, get the community together on Erev Rosh Chodesh. And you make a fast day in the whole community and you say the, the Yom Kippur cotton davening. And Baruch Hashem, what happened was we got the whole community together on that day and we all fasted and said to him, it never happened again. Never happened again. But that's not the point. The point is that to try and start seeing things where you don't see the natural connection and start fancying connections, does it mean something? Absolutely. Is it directly connected? Absolutely. Is it connected exactly to where it has to be? You can bet anything on that because we have a, a principle called midah connected midah measure for measure it happens exactly where and how it has to happen can you see that? no I was present at the Levi of Rav Moshe Feinstein when Rav, Rav Moshe Feinstein died so the Levi in Eretz Yisrael there were hundreds of thousands of people hundreds, three hundred thousand four hundred thousand people and at that Levi I happened to be privileged to be together with Rav Simcha Wasserman who's a great Torah sage of that generation and being that he was close to 90 he had difficulty walking the whole way all the way down to Amenuch, it's hard for him to walk. So his, his physician was given permission to take him in a car. So there were hundreds of thousands of people walking, and I was sitting in the back seat of the car, and, and my brother-in-law, who was his doctor, was driving him, and Rasimcha was sitting in the passenger seat. As we were in this throng of, of people, a young man put his face in the window with tears streaming down his face, and he said to Rasimcha, what does it mean? What he meant was, what he meant was the fact that Rav Moshe died about two weeks after Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky. The two great leaders of the Jewish people who are acknowledged to be like twins almost in, in, what they, in their function in the Jewish community, right, the world international Jewish community. And within two weeks of each other, they both left the world. So this young man, without even explaining what he meant, he said, what does it mean? And Rasimcha said to him, we do not know anymore. We don't know. But we, we don't know. We, we're, not, we don't, we're not on a level where we can read what those kind of things mean. And immediately he said, but we know what to do. He said, when the patient is sick and the doctor does not know what's wrong with him, he gives a broad-spectrum antibiotic. If you don't know which antibiotic is needed for this infection, you give a broad spectrum. We upgrade our Torah learning. That's what we do. Torah learning is the broad spectrum antibiotic that a Jew does. The Gemara says that. The Gemara says if you can't, the Gemara says if you go through a trouble, a suffering, and you cannot find, the Gemara says if a personal trouble happens to you, you should start examining your actions and find where you're weak. And layer by layer, you go through all your actions. If you cannot, and you, whatever you find that you're weak, that's what you correct. If you cannot find anything weak, like I'm sure would happen to most of you, then you put it down to a weakness in your Torah learning. Because that is your general lifeline to the spiritual world, and you strengthen your Torah learning. And therefore, that is what we did. I happened, I once had the privilege of discussing the subject with my Rebbe. I'll never forget the occasion. I had the opportunity to ask him this question. And I asked him, what happens if in your life, certain things happen that seem to be uniquely pointing in a certain direction and you know that they're relevant in that area. You happen to know, you know that a series of things has happened to you or one thing has happened to you and you know that it's directly connected to something that you've done or where you are lacking or weak. He said, in that case, you're allowed to make the direct connection and you're being privileged to being a di given a direct message and that's how you take it and that's what you do. And it happens, it happens. It's unusual, but it happens. When it's clear, then... You don't start making fanciful connections because you've got a superstitious, empty head. You do it because you're wise enough to know that there's a direct connection. If necessary, you talk to a Torah sage, Torah scholar, and you clarify it. In that community I described to you, obviously, there's nothing that the community could identify in that particular type of area. It was seemingly a bizarre series of events that was not connected to anything that the community could identify in any connected area. But if there would have been something that could have been, 
linked, then we have a right to say that we privileged being given a, a direct message. Is this point clear? Nothing could be more important than understanding that we live in a battered and hysterically superstitious generation where any, any hint of anything spiritual, not even with any proof at all, just any fool who has the charisma to be able to look into some or other kind of crystal ball or coffee grounds is accredited as being a you know, full-fledged mystic. We need a little more sophistication than that. This is not what Judaism is all about. That's an absolute fringe issue and needs very, very thorough investigation and verification before you start. And even if you do find a valid source, and even if you do go to it, and even if you do put any store in those things, it's not valid until you're making the effort you need to make. It's not a substitute. Torah requires certain work, certain commitments, certain obligation. Not a running off to some superstitious and superficial Yeah, um, I think it's late enough. Uh, are you going to tell me that we didn't get beyond where we got last week? <laughs> you wouldn't say that, would you? Um, with your permission, I think we'll end here. I did try to put in one or two new points that we didn't discuss on the last occasion. Is that is that is that? Yes, I did not uh, let you down, did I? So in, what, what we've done is we've gotten up to the fourth of the seven answers. If you come next time prepared, if you've taken the trouble to look through fifth, sixth, and seventh answers, I'll do my very best to recap even much more briefly than tonight. And then we can deal with the last three answers, and I'll try to give you, if we manage to cover that ground, I'll try to give you some, at least one answer, at least one answer that comes from the, some of the deeper sources that far transcends any of these, but takes a lot more effort to, to reach for. If we're able to get there, we'll try to, to look at that.